Steve, happy Monday. How are you, man? Uh, good. In theory, we're out bear hunting at the moment. So hopefully uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if your flight shows up on time. Yeah, exactly. Pre-recording this so we can start bear hunting on Monday. So yeah, hopefully that's that's what's happening. The weather, man, it's it's looking legit up there. Yeah, yeah. It's uh we've had a, a very wet, cold spring. Like every I can see a bogus basin, which is like the ski resort up above Boise from my house and uh, like just yeah, every day it rains and I look up there and it's, there's fresh snow. So it melts fast, but I know up at, up in the mountains, you know, it's not making a lot of progress when it's snowing like that. Yeah. Some of the, the current forecast is like highs in the thirties, lows in the teens still with snow. So it's still, still kind of packing in. It'll be interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. On this episode, I wanted to kick things off, um, with a pro tip from a listener and it's, uh, kind of practical, kind of inspirational. And it ties into a listener question that we'll get to at the end of this episode. Um, but I just heard this message and, and thought it was super cool to share. So we're going to kick this off right away with a, a pro tip from a listener. My name is Jonathan. I'm from Lexington, Kentucky. I'm a relatively new hunter, which is kind of ironic because I have a pro tip for your audience today. I started listening to your podcast a couple years ago when I was just backpacking and camping. And uh, I listened to one episode where you guys were giving out pro tips. And one of the pro tips was to hunt the way that works for you and enjoy the hunt. And uh, as I taught myself to hunt and got into it and dove into it head first and just loved it and think about it all the time, uh, I've always tried to make sure I enjoyed it, whether I just walked around in the woods with my bow, every encounter that I've had with an animal, I've made sure that I enjoyed what I was doing. And that's even more important to me now because I've just had a life changing event where I have to care for a medically fragile child 24 hours a day, pretty much seven days a week. And uh, the pro tip is. Get out there and make sure that you're enjoying it because you never know when it's going to stop. You never know when you're not going to have the opportunity to do it anymore. Thank you guys for the show. I really appreciate it. And I love listening. And uh, uh, you guys have a good one. All right. Thanks for sharing that, Jonathan. Uh, it's a great reminder, Steve. It's something we've talked about for sure, but I just don't feel like we can put it out there enough is a lot of times on these Q&A episodes, we talk about techniques or tactics or gear. And for me, it is like as cool as that stuff is on like focusing on having a, a quote unquote successful hunt. It's like, man, just the not overlooking the, the opportunity they have just to go experience it, whether it's a success or not, whether you make some mistakes or not, whether you have, you know, the right gear, learn some lessons or not, just the opportunity to get out and enjoy it. As this guy said, is such a great reminder. Yeah, I certainly pre-kids, you know, you just take everything for granted. And then uh, as my kids are, you know, had them now for, oh, my little guys, almost three. Um, it's like every trip, I, I certainly stop and just appreciate that I get to be out there. You know what I mean? It's just time is more precious, right? So when you are out there, it's like you got to make the most of it. You can't uh, uh, even the drives or the traveling to and from hunting you know, make that part of the trip. Don't make it something like, Oh, you know, I got to drive four hours, uh, boohoo, like make it fun, you know? Uh, and it's all life is all about positive mental attitude. Right. And the, the better, better attitude you have, the more successful you're going to be. 
Yeah. hundred percent. So Jonathan, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that message. And uh, we really do appreciate you both tuning in to the show and sharing that with us. Steve, to get to an EXO question, uh, we had one come through about the frame extensions that we have built into the K3 frame, uh, kind of when and how to use those. And I uh, thought it was a great one to touch on. So here's this question. This is Greg from Washington. Just wanted to give a quick shout out to Jake. Good job on resolving our shipping issue. Really appreciate you being on top of it and getting that sorted out. Uh, on a pack-related question, Something I don't really hear talked about too much is the frame extensions. Um, generally, I, well, I run a tall frame and generally I leave my extensions in the tall position for when I'm packing in for five to seven days and then usually just hunt with them in that position and don't mess with them too much. Um, so if you guys could maybe talk about when you leave them in the shorter position versus the longer and just kind of the ins and outs of that feature of the packs. Thanks. Have a good day, guys. I totally forgot that that mention of Jake was in there. So well done, <laughs> Jake. <too. laughs> Actually, funny story. Uh, I got an email from a customer yesterday and it was something that I was going to have to have Jake help with. And so I replied to the customer and then added Jake to the email and kind of told the customer, I was like, hey, Jake's copied on here. Who will you know look into this and get back with you type thing. Uh, and then there was some information that the customer needed to share with Jake. And the customer hit reply all. So it's now replying to me and Jake and literally started his email with, Hey, Jakey Poo. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad that uh, Jake's nickname is now expanding. So permanently cemented in there is yep. Jakey Poo. Any uh, listeners, if you need to email Jakey Poo, then go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy's going to be like 40 years old. Still, we're still going to call him Jakey Poo. Yeah. Uh, um, start from like, yeah, start from the beginning, Steve, like, because he kind of mentioned there, like, what was the idea behind those? So before we get into maybe when or how, um, can you back way up to four plus years ago now at this point when you kind of had that idea of what yeah. you're going for with the feature? Um, yeah, I mean, it, we had always been prior to K3, we had just had one frame height at 25 inches and we're all different torso lengths, right? So um, that it was a one size fits all application that doesn't necessarily work perfectly. And so with when I did K3, when I was designing it, I wanted to have the ability to offer different frame heights. And somewhere along the way, I came up with the idea to do these extensions where basically you bought one height, but then, you know, obviously pull the bottom out and flip the extensions around and you can make it an inch and a half taller. So it just gave people the versatility to get a, a proper fit. Um, and you want, there's a balance there. Like you want the frame um, up above the top of your shoulders. So when you're pulling on the load lifters that they're pulling like up and, and actually taking a little bit of pressure off the top of your shoulders, but you don't want a frame that's too, too tall that a creates head clearance issues, B creates like ducking under branch issues, um, things like that. So, uh, there's, you gotta find that balance. And that's why the, with K3, you did the two different frame heights and then you have the extension. So you have like a total of five or sorry, four different frame height options that you can run. Um, so that being said, when you break that down to the individual person, some guys completely benefit from the ability to have that versatility of adjusting the frame height. So you can, um, like for me, I would love to run a short frame. So I run it at 24 inches. And then if I kill something, I flip that around to 25 and a half. So I just increase the height of the frame an inch and a half, and I'm going to get just better comfort on my shoulders with that heavy load on the pack out. 
Um, if you're kind of in between sizes, like this guy, it sounds like if he's just running it tall, he's probably got a long torso. If he's running a tall frame extended, uh, he's got a long torso. And as long as he's not having issues at times when he's just hunting with the you know, 20, 30 pounds in the pack and feeling like that there's clearance issues behind his head, um, then there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with just running that tall all the time. Um, yeah, that's, I guess that's pretty much it. It's you, you get that versatility to adjust it and, and run it short or tall. Or if you're just, um, you know, if you're five foot seven, you're just going to run it in a 24 inch frame at 24 inches and just leave it there all the time. It's a, it's a pretty cool feature that what I liked about it is, you know, our whole, um, kind of motto is simplicity meets versatility. You have that feature built into the pack, but you would never know it. It doesn't complicate things. It doesn't create any issues. It's just, it exists uh, and it's there when you need it. And when you're not using it, uh, you completely forget about it. Yeah. I would just encourage guys, if that's something you, you think you want to try or you could benefit from, if you have a pack is go ahead and do it now, like do it in the preseason, um, get 60, 70, 80 pounds, whatever's, you know, a quote unquote heavy load to you and go ahead and run it both not extended and extended and see if you notice a difference with it. Um, because it, it, you know, it, it matters more for certain guys based on, you know, what their height and torso length is. And so plenty of guys may never need to touch it. Um, some guys may benefit from it uh, quite a bit. So try it yeah. before your hunt and before you're actually packing something out in the field that way, just so you know, so you have some familiarity. Um, but in terms of making the change in the field, it's already super simple. You're already accessing the load shelf. So you've disconnected or folded the bag away from the frame. And once you do that, it's literally an extra 20 seconds. Maybe if you decide that you want to uh, change those extensions in the field at all. So it's there. We'll leave a link, um, in the show description for uh, a video that shows how this works, or maybe you're, uh, don't have one of our packs or you're not familiar with what we're talking about. You can go check out the video and see, um, that feature that's kind of built into things. Um, getting into listener questions, uh, there was quite a few questions. I kind of wanted to group together on trekking poles and there's basically different questions, different scenarios about trekking poles, but to kick things off, here's a question about using trekking poles or not while training. Hey guys, name's Dalton. Uh, appreciate your podcast and what you do. Been listening to a lot of content. I'm going to be a new backcountry archery hunter this year. I've been hunting for years in the past, but first time going to the backcountry. One of the questions that popped in my head while I was listening to your podcast, thinking about trekking poles and training, and I was curious what the balance was that you guys took in your approach when training for things like your death hike and just overall training for your season coming up. Your trekking poles are probably going to play a big role in your hunt while you're packing in, packing out, hunting. I'm curious how much you integrate that into your training and whether or not it's beneficial to do big training hikes without them to then allow their benefit to feel exponential when you do use them. I'd appreciate your feedback on that. And thanks again for what you do. All right, Steve, we've, we've done quite a few hikes together, non-hunting related to test packs or just get outside or whatever. I've never seen you use trekking poles on a quote unquote training or pack test hike, but do you ever? Um, no, I don't. And, and this guy kind of hit the nail on the head with 
like last year going back to getting ready for my sheep hunt, you know, I knew it was going to be like pretty brutal. Um, and there's a, just a Canyon right out of Boise that I found that I could go and, you know, I could get, uh, you're kind of up, you know, a little 600 foot climbs, but they're very vertical. Um, and I just do them three, four times up and down, up and down and get a, you know, a couple thousand feet and just a few miles. Uh, and I had thought about taking the trekking poles once was like, no, like I was actually, when I was doing those hikes, I wasn't just going through the motion. I was treating it, you know, like if you're doing weightlifting, you're doing proper form, right? Like you're moving slow. You're not uh, like bringing the belt, the bar back to your chest quickly, right? Like you're controlling it back on the way down. I was doing that same type of movement while hiking, right? Like going straight downhill. I wasn't just like letting gravity take me. I was using my legs and just, and going slow and being very methodical about it with the intent of just yeah getting as strong as possible uh and trekking poles uh are only just going to make that easier so definitely um i didn't use them for that and then when you're out there in the field and you got them it's just like this huge boost that you've got right like i mean they when you're climbing up um they make a huge difference and when you're climbing down they sure take a lot of load off your knees so um I, in regards he mentioned the death hike um and i have uh, I think like just a couple, maybe one or two hikes. So if I'm going to do 50 training hikes leading up to a death hike, one or two of those in the past, like I think when we did the first hundred miler, uh, it was probably like two weeks prior to the two of the events. And I was like, I should probably get the trekking poles out and just get a few miles in with these things just because it is just getting used to, you know, you didn't want to be like sore on your arms the next day. Cause you know, when those are, trekking poles are in your hands for three days straight at 30 something miles a day. Uh, it's certainly, you know, just you're working some muscles there. That's a little bit different than not. So, um, I did, I think I did one or two hikes with them then for that reason, but that's kind of a, you know, if you're just going in five, six, seven miles, whatever on your first hunt, I don't think it's necessary to, to train with them prior. So, but they are a, a lifesaver. Um, I have, on a rifle hunt, um, like my sheep hunt last year, they're in my hands 24 seven guns strapped to the pack. Uh, and I'm using them all the time. Uh, obviously that's like on our elk hunt when you came out to Idaho in October, they're strapped to the pack. Cause it's much more, um, you could bump into an elk at any minute and you need to have access to your gun. But, uh, certainly, um, on that type of sheep hunt where it's like very low population densities and, uh, you know, the odds of me just stumbling on a sheep and shooting were basically zero. Um, it was definitely gonna be something you glassed up and stocked. So on that hunt, I had them with me the whole time. Yeah. I'm with you. I don't use them for training. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea. There's two main scenarios that come to mind when you may want to use them for training. One is if you're just flat out new to using trekking poles is just getting familiar with them. There's a little bit of technique and, um, different settings in particular, changing the length of the trekking poles that could be more beneficial while you're climbing versus descending. And so if you're new to using trekking poles, absolutely do some training hikes with them, um, to get used to them, to kind of get your technique, your form down, work out sort of any kinks, if you want to call it that. So that's one scenario. Then the other would be if you just, you know, the, the benefit to trekking poles is you are saving some, energy and efficiency and putting less demand on, um, your joints and things like that. And so, you know, if you struggle, maybe you have a bad knee and you want to get in some training hikes, but 
you know, that makes, makes things more difficult on your knee or you don't recover well or what have you, then don't feel like you shouldn't use trekking poles, um, for training. If the trekking poles allow you to, um, train more effectively, more frequently for better durations and recover better than use them. Um, yeah, those are scenarios that come to mind. I will say getting back to the technique and the settings and how to use trekking poles and when, and how it differs from uphill versus downhill. Um, Justin from SNS archery did a video recently on that very subject on how to use trekking poles. And so we'll leave a link for that in the show description as well. Um, hit that link over to YouTube and Justin has a great video, um, talking about the use of trekking poles. Steve, you once again, got ahead and got to the next question before I asked it. So kudos, but I do want to revisit trekking poles while hunting. And this was an email that came in, not an audio question. So I'll go ahead and read it. Uh, and this gentleman wrote, how do you decide when to use your trekking poles during the hunt? What is the balance of pole use versus focus and preparedness with your weapon at the ready? It's clear to me that when still hunting or in known proximity to animals, the trekking poles would be packed away. Likewise, if you're packing in or out of your hunting area, poles would be in use. But what about those times in between? I would love to hear your thoughts. So you touched on it, Steve. Um, you know, if you know that a shot opportunity is potential, um, then you obviously want to have your hands free, whether that's with a bow or rifle or on, you know, the complete opposite, you know, you're in say open country, not high densities. You're not going to need to make an incredibly quick shot. Then you can use the poles, um, use two examples there of your sheep hunt where you had them in your hand all the time versus our elk hunt, which I don't think we ever had them out while we were just hiking. Are there hunts where you go back and forth, like in between, like sometimes you have them, sometimes you don't. Yeah. I mean, as, as, as you're reading through that question, I was thinking about it, you know, certainly the terrain a dictates this. If it's just, you know, if I'm hiking flat, easy trail and I've got a light pack that, you know, the trekking poles are in the pack. Um, this is definitely more trekking in the dark, um, uh, you know, steep terrain, whether that's uphill, downhill, side hill rocky you know they, whenever you want that kind of extra traction and or you've got a heavier pack and you want you know you want the trekking poles to help kind of take the burden off of your legs um and yeah there's clearly these times hiking in and out in the dark you know guns on the pack because you're not shooting trekking poles are in your hand and then there's and there's clearly times that in the during the course of the day where it's like yeah it's you know, any moment an animal can step out. So of course, you know, the weapons in your hand. And then as he mentioned, there's all these gray areas and it's just situational just depends on again, the terrain, how heavy the pack is. And then what I think my odds are of, uh, you know, getting to, uh, you know, getting a shot at an animal at any moment. So certainly having the rifle carrier, that's why I'm a big proponent of our rifle carrier for like between our, our bow carrier, I'm just like, Hey guys, this is a cam protector. You know, you could take it or leave it. I, I don't pack one very often myself. Um, but on a rifle carrier, I think it's essential because it does give you that quick access. So if I've made the decision that trekking poles are in my hand, uh, and an animal does present itself, I can get that off there, you know, within 15 seconds or whatever it takes. Um, that to me, having that option, you know, is, is it makes that decision of trekking poles are not less critical. If it's something that's the, the guns like fully strapped to the back of your pack and you got to take it off and undo straps, then that's, um, that makes that decision tougher. 
Yeah, we'll say for me, um, I'm bad about the back and forth, meaning either I'm using trekking poles or I'm not. And I am basically too lazy to like go back and forth with, <laughs> I haven't been using my poles, but I really should for this particular descent, for example. Yeah. Um, and some of that's based on like, you know, it's steep, but it's also loose or it's steep, but maybe it's wet or what have you. And I'm more prone to be like, I haven't been using my trekking poles for hours. I'm not going to take the time to get them out now. I'll be fine. But I will say that that's put me in some situations where I've realized, no, that was a stupid you know, choice. I should have just got my poles out from a pure like safety perspective. Um, so I would say if you're like me, <laughs> don't hesitate to like take the extra second to get them out. Um, when you are facing a specific climb or descent or obstacle that they would benefit you again, just going back to being in the back country and, and making smart decisions, um, versus just being stubborn really is what it boils down to. Um, like a funny example of that, and this was not a safety thing, I guess it could have been, but <laughs> when we were in Kodiak and, uh, the very first day Jake and I were hunting and, uh, we've told this story, but long story short, we we're at the very, very top of the ridge we were getting ready to go off one side and I was like, Oh, before we leave, let me peek over the backside and, uh, did that and saw a buck Jake shot it. So we're like at this very top of this Ridge. He had this steep angle downhill shot. He shoots this buck goes down right away. We're all excited. So now we're getting ready to, uh, descend a very steep, snowy, slippery slope. And I, I kind of take off in front of Jake and he had his trekking poles out because he shot off of them uh, with the quick sticks. And he's like, hey, man, do you want a trekking pole? And I'm like, nope, I'm good. And I literally turn. I said, nope, I'm good. And I take the very first step to descend and just went all out, just <laughs> ass slid down this hill for like 50 yards. And it was so funny, like how fast it happened. Uh, and that's just like a funny example of like, no, I'm good. I don't need a trekking pole. And then the next thing I know, I'm like flying down this ridge. <laughs> Uh, and it's kind of cool because Jake has a picture from the top and you can just see this long path where I just <laughs> made a nice little slide through all the snow. So anyway, yes, there's times where you use them a lot. There's times when you don't, but the times when you should do it, even if that means an extra few seconds to get them out or put them away afterwards. That's what, uh, one thing I was going to say is I certainly use them a lot more solo hunting um, yeah, good point. just because they are, um, they really I would guess they, you know, reduce your risk of injury by 50%. Uh, I mean, they're pretty dramatic in what they do. Like if anyone who's ever packed out an animal with them, you know, like every pack out, there's like two or three times where like, man, if I didn't have my trekking pole, I'd have been down on my butt. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like you just step on a rock or the ground gives way underneath you. Um, and you would have slipped and fall, uh, that, uh, having those trekking poles is, is huge. So solo hunts there, I think I find myself, I, a, I just move slower, uh, more methodical, um, stuff, you know, back when you're 21, you're invincible. I didn't care, but now I was, you know, getting older and kids and responsibilities back at home. It's like, okay, I'll move a little slower, have my trekking poles in my hand, take my time and, and just be safer out there. Uh, once again, Steve, you got ahead and answered the <laughs> question that was coming next, <laughs> which was back to do with rifle, uh, rifles and trekking poles. Well, let me go ahead and play this question. Hey guys, this is Jason calling from Pennsylvania. I had a question I've been meaning to ask you guys and seeing the Chris Reeve knife giveaway. Uh, I thought what would be a better time now to ask you guys. So the question is when backpack hunting, I've run into this issue quite a few times 
uh, you're traversing through rough terrain, using trekking poles, and I keep my gun ready with on a sling on my shoulder. Well, the sling continues to ride off my shoulder. Um, I just didn't know if there was a a device or a tip or or something you guys use to keep the gun on your shoulder when walking through rough terrain and using trekking poles. That's it. Thanks, guys. Yeah, so the Steve, you answered that question, but the short answer is there's not a good way to do that. So if you're using trekking poles, have your rifle secured to the pack um, and not on your shoulder uh, with a standard sling. Um, just in my experience, having tried to do both, it just does not work, especially as this guy said, in difficult terrain, you don't want to be making sudden movements, for example, to try and catch your rifle as it slides off your shoulder and then you end up throwing your balance off and falling or what have you. So, um, Steve, you mentioned how you can set up our rifle carrier for very quick access. And so, uh, again, for listeners, I'll leave a link to, um, to that video that shows that super simple process in the show description. Um, when it comes to rifle carry in general, there's just a lot of preference involved. You know, there's different, rifle carriers, different sling types, different ways to do it. Um, you know, and obviously we take a certain approach for a reason. We want the rifle to be very secure, um, but also give you an option to have access. So, um, just check that out. But I think the short answer to this guy's question is there's not a great way to have the rifle just truly slung on your shoulder and remain hands-free. It just doesn't work well. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. Just cause the, the butt of it's going to be just swinging around and yeah, um, there's there's one there's a product. Uh, there's, it's a guy in Boise. I can't remember his name, but it's called Pack Rat P A K R A T. Um, and I just googled it, and an Amazon thing popped up. And it is a little if you're dead set that you have to have a sling on your gun, and that's how you're going to carry it. It's a little like plastic clip that attaches underneath the shoulder harness webbing, and uh, and gives you like a basically gives you a, has a little lip so that the sling can't slide off your shoulder. Um, that still doesn't solve the butt of the gun swinging around, but it does solve that shoulder problem a little bit. So if that's something somebody's interested in, it's a $15 product on Amazon. You sure check it out and try it. Um, again, I'd, if I just much rather have our rifle carrier and it's strapped to the pack and it's rock solid, it's not going to slip and fall. And, um, you know, you want to protect that gun as best as possible. Um, and that's a, having it strapped to the pack and secure is to me, you know, the best way to do that. All right. So there is a question that came up about uh, our use of suppressors and then in particular traveling with suppressors. Here's this question. Chad from Tennessee, you guys have done several podcasts on suppressors. Uh, my question is what's been your experience traveling with the suppressor? What documentation do you need? Uh, have you ran into any issues, any tips that uh, you've come up with? along the way. Thanks. All right. So as this podcast is released, I should be traveling with a suppressor. So that it was timely to, to chat about it. Um, I'll hit driving first. The main thing with uh, driving is know your local regulations for every state that you're traveling through. Um, federal or um, suppressors are basically federally managed. It's a you know, it's a federal tax stamp and a federal approval process. And in most states, um, there aren't additional regulations or restrictions on suppressors other than that the federal rules, but there are certainly exceptions to that. 
um, for states like Illinois, California, New York, et cetera. So just be aware if you're driving of each state that you're going to be in possession of that suppressor with. Um, flying is basically just treat it the same way as you treat your firearm. Um, I've flown with my suppressor a bunch with my rifle, um, and never have had any questions about the suppressor in particular. So you do want it to be, um, again, same, same regulations, essentially as your firearms, you want it to be locked in a hard sided container, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I just have my suppressor in my rifle case with my rifle. Um, and again, no issues, no questions asked, et cetera. In terms of this relates to traveling, yes, but also really just your possession of the suppressor in general, you are supposed to have your, your tax stamp, which is basically like your form of approval that you are who you say you are. The suppressor is yours. It's a serial numbered item. And this tax stamp, this documentation shows um, you as the individual, your right to own that specific suppressor, again, a serialized item, et cetera. Um, you're supposed to have proof of that with you. Um, I generally will travel uh, with a full color copy of my tax stamp in my hard case. When flying, for example, I will put it between the outer shell uh, and the inner foam of the rifle case. And so it's there, it's out of the way. You don't really see it. I'm not going to lose it. It's sandwiched in between there, but I have access to it. And then um, in the field, whether that's on a hunt or honestly, as I'm driving back and forth, say at home to the range or something like that, I often don't have a paper copy, but what I've personally done is I have a full resolution, full color scan of that paperwork in my phone. And then this is an important key, especially for a backcountry hunt downloaded with offline access. Um, to be honest with you guys, this is none of this is legal advice. I should say that um, <laughs> do your own research. I, the chances of like you being on a backcountry hunt and running into say like a fish and game agent and him questioning you about your use or possession of a suppressor is incredibly small. Most local law enforcement, whether that's, you know, a cop on the street or fish and game, et cetera. They don't really know much about suppressors. And I'm sure that that's changing because they are getting more and more popular, but long story short, I would just have some sort of proof that your identity and then that specific suppressor, you have the rights to own and possess it. So carry the full paperwork if you want to, I feel confident having that full scan that I mentioned with offline access. If by chance I run into somebody miles deep in the backcountry, for example, um, and then definitely with traveling, have good documentation. But don't think for a second that you know TSA is going to like flip out and ask to see your birth certificate and everything else just because you have a suppressor. They probably have no idea what a suppressor is when they see it. Yeah, I'm very casual on like i've in my hard gun case that i travel with is i put the copy of it in there uh in a ziploc bag just like you said in between the foam and the case so it's just i just left it in there no way i know i know the next time i travel it's there and that's the extent of it if i'm just jumping in my truck and driving to the mountains here in idaho i don't i, I know i'm supposed to but i don't have anything with me yeah. um i'm not too worried about it 
Um, I will leave a link as well, just if you guys have questions further about traveling, what states suppressors are, are not allowed, et cetera. Um, the guys from Silencer Central have a good article about traveling with a suppressor. Um, so it goes a bit more in depth than what I just mentioned. And it's probably been fact checked better than what I mentioned. Again, that was my personal take, not the full letter of the law on everything there. Uh, Steve, let's wrap up with this one. And this kind of gets back to that pro tip from the beginning. This question is from a newer backpack hunter, not a newer backpacker, not a newer hunter, but a newer backpack hunter looking for advice. And honestly, when I hear these types of questions, I always go to just go enjoy the process. Like that's where my answer always starts. And so that pro tip for the beginning uh, is my first answer to this guy's question, but let's hear the rest of this question. Hey, this is Steve and I have got kind of a broad question with some clarification. So I apologize if it's a little long winded, but um, I'm going on a spring bear hunt up there in Idaho this, um, this coming couple weeks. Um, and uh, my brother-in-law is coming. Well, he has never hunted before. I've never hunted bear. Um, I've been hunting and hiking my whole life. Uh, we're doing a backpacking hunt, which I've never done. I've always just gone out for the day and come home. Um, so those two things put together, I'm looking for any tips and tricks for, for the bear hunt and specifically for the backpack hunting. Um, I just feel somewhat responsible for making this at least halfway a success. So um, any tips and tricks would be greatly appreciated. Um, thank you. All right, Steve. So this guy has backpacked before he's hunted before, but he's never been on a multi-day backpack hunt. And it sounds like he's new to bear hunting and he's bringing someone with him that is new to all of it. Um, and so we could talk for hours about different topics and et cetera. But the way I want to approach this question is like, if you had a five minute phone call with him and he's like, Hey man, I'm getting ready to head out now with some last minute thoughts or advice. What would that be? Cause it sounds like he's taken off on this hunt here very soon. Yeah. Um, like you said, go enjoy it. Um, you, you know, don't get, uh, people th- kind of get too nervous about a backpack hunt and the, uh, just like, don't overthink it. Just hike in three miles whatever um and if if you're not having a good time if you're cold and wet the trucks you know downhill back out like go back to the truck have you know have some camping gear and stuff at the truck that you can go back and dry out and get comfortable maybe is is some good advice um as far as the hunt itself um you know pick if he's coming up here soon there's still like as i mentioned earlier when you and i are going to be bear hunting as this is going on there's still a lot of snow up high in the mountains focus on south facing slopes that are you know grassy uh, nice and green and then bear populations you know we have a lot of black bears but it's still nothing compared to the amount of deer and elk that we have and so you have to be um my tip that i think i did this last monday minute of just sitting and being patient and just putting a lot of time behind the glass because they are they're really good at bears are just good at just popping out of nowhere um, and because there's not a lot of them, you just, your best strategy is to sit and just glass as much country as you can from one vantage point. Um, you know, 
get I wouldn't get behind spine scope much because they're not, you know, even a cinnamon kind of brownish bear is going to look pretty black through the binoculars. They stand out very well. Um, so you don't need a spine scope. Just get your binoculars tripod mounted and just spend a lot of time behind them focusing on, you know, f- feed, right? They're coming out of their dens and they want to feed right now and get f- fattened up because they're starving from the winter. Um, that's a good strategy for that. As far as, oh man, yeah, backpacking with a buddy who's never hunted before. Um, just make it as comfortable as you can and, and enjoyable as you can. And, you know, if the weather's, uh, if you got some time and the weather's crap, like hang out at the truck, road hunt for the day. And then when the weather's good, go in because backpack, you know, backpacking when it's cold and wet can certainly be kind of miserable. Um, so be a, be a fair weather backpacker on your first trip or two. Uh, I don't think it's bad advice. Uh, I don't know, man. That's a tough, there's such a broad question. Yeah, no, that's good. A couple of things that came to mind for me was, especially in, in that context of bringing this guy along and it's his complete first experience. It sounds like at all this is, you know, some of this is new to you, the hunter, but you have more experience, as you said, backpacking and some more experience hunting, just not in this type of hunt yet. But this new guy that you're bringing is really going to be looking at you, whether you know it or not, to like get a feel for things. And what I'm getting at is like your attitude is going to be really contagious to him. And so if things do suck a little bit and you're quick to get like down on the dumps or get negative, that's certainly going to be contagious. Or if things suck a little bit, but like you stay positive and have, you know, an upbeat attitude, et cetera, then that's going to be contagious too. And that's always the case. Like if you're in a group and a dynamic of, you know, your attitude is contagious, but it's especially true when you have somebody with you who has far less experience because they're really looking to you to be like, understand what's happening right now. And so your attitude, your mindset, just be aware that that's contagious. Um, another practical thing is being your first backpack hunt is during the hunt itself, as well as after the hunt, when you get home, but like take notes. And so if you have a, a quick thought, um, of like, oh, this, you know, I don't need this next time, or I should have brought this, or I learned this lesson. Maybe it's about bears. Maybe it's not even about gear or whatever, whatever you learn or think or any insight you get in that moment, go ahead and write that down. And so that can be as simple as like a notes app on your phone. Um, You can have like a pen and paper with you, whatever. Um, But don't just assume that, you know, two, three weeks later, or maybe a year later, when you go to do this hunt again, you're going to remember the little details or the, the little lessons that you learned. So in the moment, as you have thoughts, jot those down so that you have them as a reference for the future. Um, and again, as we've said many times, just go enjoy it. Don't take it too serious. Uh, go have some fun, learn some lessons, hopefully find some bears and, uh, yeah, enjoy every bit of it. All right. We're going to wrap up there guys. As always, we thank you for the questions. Once again, just look for the link in the show description that says leave a message. And it's really simple to send us one of these audio messages with a question for a future episode. We would love to hear from you and know what you want us to talk about in future shows. Also, we mentioned several videos and other resources throughout this conversation. Um, So check out the show description for that to get access to all those resources. And finally, don't forget to hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically. And we'll talk to you soon.